Okay. Number 160. I asked the master once, after I'd pondered his life as William, is it possible, sir, for a liberated master not to live in a state of samadhi, the highest state of ecstasy? He replied, one never loses the awareness that he is inwardly free. Can't you just see Swamiji just trying to sort all this out? You know, I mean, all of us, we're still all trying to sort it out. I'm constantly trying to figure out what an avatar is, and there's Swamiji, and, you know, his entire life with Master was only three years, so it wasn't like he had decades of mature spiritual life to reflect upon this. Of course, Swami was precocious, let's put it like that. But there he was just as he himself said, trying to just sort out how Master could be omnipresent and in the next room having dinner. <laughs> so here he's got William, and he says, is it possible? I mean, how could you be in Samadhi and still be William? It just was so confusing to him. So Master replies, one never loses the awareness that he is inwardly free. You have to, I, think that's, I think that's a very serious meditation. Indeed, when I reflect on avatars like, like Lahiri Mahashaya, I see that in order to fulfill their earthly ties, in Lahiri Mahashaya's case, it was to marry, to work like other householders, and to raise a family, and at the same time to be inwardly an exalted yogi, they had to accept a certain veil of delusion. What are we talking about? I don't know. It was only when Lahiri Mahashaya met Babaji in the Himalayas that he fully recalled his true spiritual nature. And yet, um, Babaji said to him, I saw you as a young child when you buried yourself in the sand and sat for hours in meditation. So it wasn't that he didn't have something of his nature. But then you have that, that whole interaction where uh, Lahiri didn't remember Babaji. And, didn't, and don't you recognize your blanket? Don't you recognize your water pot? And then Babaji touched him and he understood. You know, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind? What is it that they're really taking on? Unimaginable. A liberated master, however, though assigned even the task of walking among worldly people as a worldly person himself, never loses his awareness that nothing in this world can, um, can touch him inwardly. That's the point of... Uh, uh, meditation on it because and, and this is the whole we have a whole lot of sections just a second um, we have a whole lot of sections right now about this whole business about how you live in the world and what the proper way is and just that simple phrase never nothing ever really touched him inwardly like how would you live if you're inner state was always the same. That doesn't mean that your outward involvement and your participation and, and, and how far inward is that? Because in just another section or two, Master talks about, it might, we might not get to it tonight, but he talks about when Woody's mother died, Woody was one of his disciples, Master got very withdrawn. And it says, um, don't be moody. And Master says, it's not a mood to miss someone who was a good friend of yours. So it's not as like they're not touched. It's not as if they don't participate. Lahiri exclaims because the people in Japan are being drowned. So it's, it's very important because neophytes on the spiritual path hear the phrase non-attachment and they draw out of it either not being uncommitted, being lazy, which is not putting out full energy, or being cold, being aloof. And so there's, there's something different in here where Lahiri was fully engaged in his life, but inwardly he was um, playing a part. You know, you, you go through it. I, I had that one experience, I've had a few others, when, since I was doing Gyanamata a couple of times, um, and, but the other experience was just being in the children's play, playing the part of Mary. And when we did, you know, the children's play was a little, it's a little rocky because you're acting with children, so it's up and down. But 
one of the years, in the early years of our school, when we didn't have many children and many of them were small, we had a whole lot more adults on the stage, which in many ways was a really good thing because when the children were acting against adults, the adults held the energy much more dynamically than the other children could, so it brought the children into it. But um, parents like to see their own children in starring roles, so it, it was necessary. Plus, with 70 children, we just changed. But in that play, I was uh, Jesus' mother, and I, I've shared this with some of you, but it was, it was just an interesting artistic moment, because I was Jesus' mother, and Joseph had died, <laughs> And by that point, it was Gary was Joseph, I was Mary, and Matthew, big Matthew, the teacher, who was a professional actor, was playing Jesus beautifully. And we played it out where Joseph died. You know, it's not, in the Bible, it's not a big part, but we played it out. We had sort of an Irish wake. We had him sitting there. <laughs> and the way it was supposed to be played was I, as Mary, was very reluctant to leave him. And my son, Jesus, Matthew, would just come and forcibly remove me. And, of course, because I had such complete trust in Matthew, which is sort of part of what makes acting fun, I totally trusted him. I didn't have to, he, I didn't have to in any way think about what was going to happen. I could just entirely be as if, you know, I was Mary and Joseph had died and that was all that happened. And then Matthew just came and did what he was supposed to do. He made me leave when I didn't want to leave. And it was just such a vivid, artistic moment because I was, that was all that was happening. Just, it was totally happening. But of course, it wasn't happening. It, of course it wasn't happening. I was in a costume, we were on the stage, there were all these people watching. It was Gary, you know, it was Matthew. But it wasn't. It was, the, the reality of what we were doing just took us over and we completely experienced it. But inwardly, and then that's the closest you can come. And uh, I had another one of that. Oh, yes, in, uh, one of the times when we, I did Gyanamata, I think we did it three times. I don't remember whether it was at the village or when we did it in Portland or Sacramento. I really don't remember which one it was. But uh, I suddenly found myself at the end of the monologue. And I wasn't sure whether I had skipped the whole monologue. I just didn't know. And, and I was standing there realizing I was giving the last lines. And really, for just a split second, I completely panicked. But then, you know, I just paused very small. But I could, I could remember myself physically being in the different spots where the lines were because the, the blocking and the words were very... And I could remember that I had walked in all those spots. So therefore, probably, I had delivered the whole monologue and I could just go ahead and finish it at this point. But there you are. But if anybody had stopped me and asked me who I was, I was Asha inside this dress with my hair sprayed white, you know. It was a part. But I didn't hold back in either of those two cases. So that the, I, I, my identity was, had shifted. My participation was total. But not really. I mean, that's why acting is such an interesting thing. I started out acting, well, I did it in high school because it was the only thing, the only thing that interested me was theater, acting theater. You know, I just, for the last few years of my high school, I was either on the stage or I was behind the stage. And this is just trivial. A friend of mine, his name is John Beatty. He actually went on to be an award-winning set designer. He was way into this from when he was a child. And he had parents who totally encouraged him, and he just went on. And it, I didn't sing. I didn't sing then. I don't sing now. So they were doing a musical, Oklahoma, I think it was. So I did the props because I wanted to be part of it. And John did the sets, as he always did. Um, but then, when they were actually performing it, we were done. And so we got just off stage, and we were just in the wings. And we sang, and we danced, and we, we did the whole performance. But we just did it behind the curtains where nobody knew. And much more exuberantly, I think, than anyone on the stage could, because I don't think we actually sang, because neither of us could sing very well. But we did the rest of it with full zeal. But these experiences, I was starting to say, I, and right after high school for a little while, I, I was getting into community theater and, you know, it was, it was really the road not taken. And, but I remember rehearsing the play, we were doing the principal, and that's a story about the Salem witch hunts and I had the lead role in it. 
some young woman who accuses people. I think, I can't remember. It's a sort of a sordid tale. I think she had an affair with the minister and then he accused her of being a witch. It's, it was a pretty tough story. So I was just with my friend. I said, okay, let's rehearse a little. And we, so we're, we started rehearsing this, you know, this really fierce, hysterical scene for this woman, my part. And just, you know, we're just having tea. Okay, sure, we'll rehearse. And all of a sudden, I'm just screaming out of my mind. And it was just like, um, it scared me. It's like, you know, where did that come from? And do I really, do I really want to just go into all those realities? And I, I never did that play. I stopped at that point. But the other side of it, from the spiritual point of view, and I was already into spiritual things at that point, was I was fascinated by the potential as an actor that the concept of reincarnation gave you and the concept of detachment from this personality gave you because I, it, it became obvious to me how, how magnificently you could really enter a part you know, what you could bring to it and how totally you could commit yourself to it because why not? You know, once you, once you were able to relinquish this one, you could just go anywhere with it. So I saw how the practice of meditation and acting, none of which is really samadhi or anything like that, but it helps us just get a picture. And if we can get a picture of that and then just begin to apply it to this, this is really just a script. And it really is just a script. And, and we have a very consistent character and, you know, we have a certain number of costume changes and we act out the whole thing and we grieve and we rejoice and we lose our center and we find it again and tragic things happen. And what is the difference? Because at the end of it, we are pulled out of it as completely as any actor is pulled out of their part. You know, I mean, a lot of actors end up being mentally unbalanced because they get so confused about who they are and what part they play and um, especially movie making I, be, I, ca I came to understand from the little bit of movie making I did because the movie making people will go off to some strange location the people will be completely separated from their normal lives they'll form this false world that they'll just play out that's why they fall in love with each other and leave their husbands and wives and all that because they just move into a complete atmosphere. A, a, a Broadway actor at least goes home to their own apartment, sleeps in their own bed, and gets up the next morning and does it again. You're not completely separated in quite such an enormous way. But that's no different. And it's really marvelous. I mean, I've, I mentioned these in detail because just think if all that were happening to us right now is that we've really gotten into our parts and we're really playing them with just total abandon. You know, just trusting that the script is just going to play itself out. And, you know, I didn't have to stand there and wait for Matthew to come and get me. I could just, I could just grieve. And then when Matthew came and got me, I could not want to go, which is exactly what I did. And he was big enough, he literally lifted me off the ground and just carried me off, just as he might have done, you know, all in the moment. What are we holding back from? Where does the script come from? It, and see, that's the difference. Inwardly, we're not touched. Because we're not. Meaning, this that we appear to be is a costume. And we're cast into the part. Very important. And this can't be overemphasized enough. All the world is a stage. There's thousands of images. Master then got the movies to even make it even more dynamic. All right. Number 161, history, Napoleon Bonaparte is reputed to have said, is a lie agreed upon. Whether he said it or not, it was well spoken. Um, the, the victor always writes the history anyway. That's the other thing that happens. Whoever is defeated is expunged. And then the victorious one describes it as they want it to be remembered. It's just so simple. Um, the, the history of Christianity has just been... Can, consistently rewritten by the church. <laughs> Among such lies, certainly, are many of the legends surrounding William the Conqueror. A disciple of the Masters was reading William's life once and came upon a passage where William is described as courting Matilda, his wife, by knocking her down and dragging her about the room by her hair. 
amused, the disciple read this section aloud to the master, who replied in amazement, how they distort history. What happened wasn't like that at all. <laughs> you know, it's, I've always, I've always had too much confidence in my own point of view. It gets me in trouble more than it, well, I would say it's a 50-50 thing. But I've always had a, a lot of confidence in my own point of view. And it's extremely important to realize merely because even a whole lot of people agree on something. It, it doesn't necessarily have any validity. And what I've just always so loved about Master's teachings and Swami Kriyananda's way of expressing it is that, you know, you start with this framework of, of probability based on divine events, on an understanding of human nature, a, an intuitive appreciation sort of of how things must have worked out. So when you, when you read things that just don't make any sense to human nature at all, or you, especially it's true if you read lives of the saints and what Jesus was supposed to be like and so on. I mean, Swamiji has often said, you know, Jesus couldn't have been this, either this um, limpid sort of lamb just wandering about or this very um, down and out sorrowful guy who was always spending all his time mourning because who would have listened to him? He, he had to have been another way. And so whenever we hear something that doesn't quite make sense, don't think just because a lot of people think it's true, it is true. Um, the, you know, religion especially. Um, I, uh, I read this long uh, mono, uh, treatise about uh, St. Thomas, who went after Jesus died, who went to India and took the message of Jesus to India. Actually, he returned to India because Jesus had already taken the message of Jesus to India, but he went to follow up on what Jesus himself had started. And, for, and it was because of St. Thomas that Christianity went to the south of India. And his body is in Chennai. There's a, a, a big church there dedicated, and you go down under, and they say that his body is buried there. It's a very powerful place, very powerful where his body is underneath. Of course, in the hot weather, it's about 900 degrees in there, but still, it was, um, it was very um, humid. You know, just, it was really underground feeling, but still really powerful. But what happened, in, according to what I read, which I believe to be true, is that for, for several hundred years, Chris, uh, the teachings of Jesus were practiced in India as Sanatana Dharma. It was that Jesus had taught Sanatana Dharma and Christianity in India was just a natural uh, continuation of the same principles they'd always understood, but through this new avatar, who himself had traveled through the country. And it just was like that for a very long time. They were Thomas Christians, is what they were. And then the Portuguese came, and they were Roman Catholics. And the Portuguese very systematically obliterated all traces of Thomas Christianity. They um, burned all the books. They just did everything to wipe it out completely because they considered it a heresy. And then they, they replanted Roman Catholicism. And so you end up thinking that, that, that that's what Thomas taught, except there are, you know, some records that escape, but not that much. So it's, it's a little bit sketchy. But just over and over again, you just hear, this is what they said, this is what they did. When I, um, uh, I think what the issue was... I, I had a friend who was an, uh, I had, well, I say had because he's, I think he's no longer living, but he's no longer mentally cogent. And uh, he was an Episcopal priest. He had a divinity degree from Yale, undergraduate from Stanford, divinity from Yale, big smart guy. And I would ask him questions periodically about the Bible because he knew a lot about it. So I was questioning him something to do with um, some aspect of it because I noticed that Jesus recommended that the disciples gather in small intentional communities and I was very interested in that <laughs> and various other things but I was discussing it, uh, Christian theology from the Bible with my friend Chuck Charles and uh, he explained to me with a, with a completely straight face that Jesus' teachings were incomplete when he presented them 
And it was only over the next several hundred years that the full teaching of Christianity came to be known. It was one of those moments where, you know, you're just, I just looked at him for a little bit and I gathered my thoughts. So what you're telling me is it's because Chuck was also a Kriyabhan. But this is, you know, this was his background. So he just told me that with a perfectly straight face. So I looked at him for a moment and said, uh, so Jesus, who was a fully self-realized master, was incapable of understanding his own teachings, and it took generations of intellectual clergymen to sort it out for him. And, and Chuck just sort of looked at me like this, you know, and he sort of sagged <laughs> and had to admit that, well, yes, in fact, that did sound rather ridiculous, didn't it? But there it was. That's what he'd been educated to believe. Because over several hundred years, the church authorities gradually got a hold of it and turned it into something they could understand and that they could administer and that they could operate. And it had nothing to do with Jesus, but they, they worked it all out. And Chuck, who was a brilliant man, swallowed the whole thing. And so there's just a great deal that happens that we, as, uh, as devotees, you just have to stop for just a minute and really think about this. You know, the political scene, the social scene, uh, we, we often just kind of fall into just agreeing with everyone without really stopping to think. Okay, number 162. Patterns repeat themselves in the lives of individuals no less than in the history of nations. The Master told us that his oldest son in that life, Duke Robert, was Swami Dirananda in this life. Dirananda once again betrayed him, and for the same reasons as before, envy and jealousy. Just so here we are again. It's just like, I can't believe this. In Autobiography of a Yogi, there is an episode where Yogananda's guru, Sri Yukteswar, expressed displeasure with Yogananda to the master's father. The book states the only cause of Sri Yukteswar's displeasure at the time was that I had been trying against his gentle hint. It's always interesting. You think of Sri Yukteswar as being fierce and outspoken, but he's saying against his gentle hint. I had been trying to convert a certain man to the spiritual path. That certain man was Swami Dirananda. Bhagji or Bhachji or something like that was his name. He was a boyhood friend. There he is. You know, and Master doesn't forget. I mean, this man... Robert, when he was Robert, he was, when, when William was dying, Robert had massed an army and was trying to take his kingdom from him. I mean, instead of Swami, as the youngest son, was at his father's deathbed, and Robert was out marauding, trying to take the kingdom from him. And finally, Robert caused Henry, Kriyananda, so much trouble that eventually he just arrested him and put him in house arrest for the rest of his life. He just couldn't leave him out there because he wouldn't keep his word, he wouldn't keep a treaty, he wouldn't keep the peace. He just kept stirring up trouble. So a master captured him, Swami captured him and put him under house arrest. Just kept him there. He lived very comfortably. He could do anything he wanted, but Henry never let him out again because it just couldn't happen. So it was Swami Dirananda. It was the master's responsibility in this life as it had been in former lives to help his disciple. Now see, there's the key point. Dhirananda had the very, very good karma to be both in this life and in that life, well-born, powerful, charismatic, capable, and disloyal. And at the same time, he also had the very, very good karma to be master's actual son, and in this case, to be master's boyhood friend and and. They don't tell the whole story, but Master brought Dhirananda to America and put him in charge of Mount Washington. And he was very charismatic and very popular, and Master traveled all over the country, and Dhirananda was the second in charge. You know, here's, here's Robert's desire fulfilled, and Master knew full well what was going on. Sri Yukteswar was trying to spare him. So anyway, it was the Master's responsibility in this life, as it had been in former's lives, to help this disciple. The fact that he was a... a that he was going to cause Master a lot of trouble. You know, it was his job to help him. Sri Yukteswar, for his part, saw it as his own responsibility to spare his disciple the great problems he foresaw in the future. 
Uh, in fact, as Tulsi Bose, a boyhood friend of Yogananda's, told a close disciple of the Master years later, Paramahansaji once said to me when we were still boys together, someday Bhakti, Bhakti, which was his name at the time, Swami Dirananda's name, will betray me and marry a white woman. <laughs> they were just boys. Someday he's going to be, betray me and marry a white woman. I loved, you know, being a white woman myself. The first time I heard Indians refer to me as a white woman <laughs> or as to someone else as a white man, I, I just, it, it was marvelous. And it was also marvelous to realize how completely um, egocentric I was that I'd never crossed my mind that this man in front of me saw me as a white woman. Just, it just was strange. But even that, but that, you know, my Indian friends would speak like that. You know, so-and-so, my friend married a white woman. Um, the new boss is a white man. Or finally, they put someone other than a white man in charge. You know, there's this whole cultural thing that was going on all around me that I'd never even thought about. So, especially at that time, it was a real um, interracial marriage that was not common. So not only would he betray me, but he would marry a white woman. I mean, he'd just go way outside the fold. The master had known what would occur, in other words, in the very beginning. His guru is telling him not to convert this man. He's still doing it. I'm sure between him, him and Sri Yukteswar, it was master saying, like, you know, Father, what can I do? You know, he belongs to me. I have to take care of him. I have to just set him up and let him play it out again because that's the only way he's ever going to be free. He gets to have a chance. Why were Sri Yukteswar and Yogananda at odds on this matter? Such, the Master himself told me, is the divine play in the lives of the Masters. Is this an answer? I don't know. To us, that play can seem very mysterious. It was the role they were given to play. It was just everything I was saying. This is part of the script. It's what makes the script interesting. And all the, the, the karmic threads. You know, see, Master himself and Sri Yukteswar didn't have karma but all these other people had karma. So this Dirananda had to play all this out. And Master just had to facilitate it. He couldn't thwart the plot because the man's karma had to run its course. So he had to facilitate it like this. Um, I, Walter, got, I, Wal, I, Walter, got to meet William's second son of that lifetime, William Rufus. Again, these stories are so strange. In the present life, Master told us he was a New York businessman named Vickerman. I think he was a rug salesman, if I'm not mistaken. Mr. Vickerman was a sincere spiritual aspirant and the Master's disciple. At our meeting, he remarked that he felt toward me like a brother, a feeling that was based, I believe, on an old memory. Vickerman was not in the ashram in California. He never became a monk. He was... He lived on the East Coast, I believe, in New York, if Swami he may not mention it, but anyway, he was in New York or somewhere on the East Coast. He kept in touch with Master, inwardly especially, but he, he wasn't, nobody really knew him. It was just there he was. And Swami knew about him because he was a sincere person. Maybe he already knew that he was William Rufus. Maybe Master told him, right. So he went to meet him. During that meeting, um, he related to me the following story. I began to meditate many years ago. After I had been practicing for some time, however, I encountered an insurmountable obstacle, the breath. I couldn't go deeper in meditation so long as my breath kept on pumping away, distracting my concentration. I had to learn how to go breathless. In fact, I needed help. The problem was I didn't know where to go to, to get it. One day I saw in the newspapers that a certain Swami Yogananda was scheduled to give a lecture in Philadelphia. I dismissed the thought of listening to, to him and told myself impatiently, I've heard too many swamis, I'm not interested in what they have to say, but if this man can help me to go breathless, I must go and meet him. Now here is Vickerman. He's been William's son in a previous life. All the stories that you read about in Two Souls, Four Lives of William Rufus and who he was and how he behaved and what a mess he made of being the king and all of those different things. And here he is is a businessman in New York and he sees a sign for Yogananda, but he doesn't remember. He just feels drawn to go. I mean, look at the plot. All of us are playing out these parts. We have no idea all the other roles that we've played. 
we're just lost in the particular script that we have right now and don't remember that we've been in 100,000 other plays with 100,000 other scripts that are a continuous story. See, that's the other part. They're not like these are separate plays. It's just now we've just all changed our costumes. So now here I am and I see Swami Yogananda and it's a straight line from when he was my father and I was the king and I got shot with an arrow in the eye and I died and Henry became the king. I mean, all the things that happened. But he's just here and, and he's the same, as Swami said, he had the same personality. William Rufus was a very rough character. He said Vickerman was a very rough character. I didn't attend the lecture, but waited for him in the, in the hotel. And he, can you see this man, Vickerman? He's just like, he's, he's waiting in wait. He doesn't go to the lecture. It's like everybody else goes to the lecture. He doesn't go to the lecture. He also knows he somehow has some claim on this man. You know, I mean, that was, it was a very, you might have said presumptuous, but it didn't feel presumptuous to Vickerman because somehow in his own heart, he knew that he had a right here. He'd been his son. He didn't know. On his return, I went up to his room and knocked on the door, which he opened. Determined to waste no time, I asked him bluntly, can you help me to go breathless? <laughs> He's just come up and knocked on his door. Yes. <laughs> Master said equally briefly, come inside. Of course, Master, of course, recognized him immediately. Oh, there you are. Like, they'd been separated for how many years, but for Master, no time has passed. In superconsciousness, no time has passed. All the while that he was William Rufus, he was trying to help him get liberated, and they got a certain distance. Master died, William died, who knows what happened in between. And then there he is again. Nothing has changed, and his consciousness is still not quite finished, and so Master picks at, I mean, he's just dealing with his consciousness, just pulls his consciousness in. So they started right there. I entered, and he touched me. All at once, my breath stopped. I entered the breathless state of superconsciousness. Since then, I have been his devoted follower. Yeah, an amazing story. William Rufus II, King William II, as he became, is said to have had a brusque personality. A diamond in the rough is how he might be described. He was, however, in his own somewhat heavy-handed way, completely loyal to his father. William Rufus was, unlike Robert Curthose, who was completely disloyal to his father. William was loyal, Rufus was loyal to his father. And as Mr. Vickerman, remained equally loyal to Master. Quite a story, isn't it? And you know, it's a, it's a tale in itself, especially if you've read about William and Henry, which if you haven't read Two Souls, Four Lives, or haven't read it recently, it's a marvelous tale. And just takes your little brain and it scrambles it like eggs and kind of pours it out on the sidewalk and then you have to just reassemble reality for yourself. Um, and then you hear stories like this and it's, it's partly just the sheer entertainment value of it, I must admit, but also the implications of it for us, for our own role in our own life and at what point did we come on the path and what were we doing just before and just everything has this compelling continuous reality that we just have to move with it. We can't, what do I want to say? We can't resist. We have to just take what God has given us and put our whole hearts into it and realize it's just the middle of the story. There's no possible way to understand. Every, it, that was the, I believe it was the Dalai Lama's comment. It was a Buddhist comment. We think of reincarnation as a series of separate lifetimes. And it isn't. It is one continuous event. You finish this incarnation, you just go right on into the astral world. When Paula was in the last days of her life, she called Swami on the phone, or he called her, but they were talking on the phone. Paula said in her almost childlike way, I hope they have a job for me in the astral world, Swamiji. You know I love to be busy. And he said, I'm sure they do, Paula. Just like that. And when I later you know, sort of spoke to Swami about Paula because I felt her around me a lot right after she died. And he said, I said, is she still thinking about us? And he said, essentially, of course. She's busy. What would she be doing? You know, she's, she, just merely because she died didn't mean that she lost interest in serving people or that she lost interest in serving the people she'd been serving this whole time. You just 
keep going and you're just in a new reality. It might, I don't know what it really looks like. I don't know what you're really doing. But nothing changes. And in the same context, the question about um, uh, people having encounters in their dreams. Swami himself, um, I was just asking him about, you know, what, what is it when somebody dreams about you or dreams that you came and helped them in a certain way, as, as happened to him often? His answer was, super consciousness never sleeps. Which is like super consciousness is not material. And sleep is a physical phenomenon that the physical organism and the brain needs. But the super consciousness doesn't need to go into sleep. So merely because you fall asleep doesn't mean that your essential intention to help people goes away. Why would it? You're just resting your body. You're not resting your soul. And the same thing when you die. Your essential nature, whatever it was or is, just moves right on into another town. Just like changing countries or changing jobs. or It's a little more dramatic perhaps, but perhaps not. Swami emphatically said to me on one occasion, nothing happens when you die. Absolutely nothing happens. You just move you know, to the, another room in our Father's mansion if you want to think of it like that. So therefore, everything that we've ever done in every incarnation is just, we're just carrying it on. It's the very next step. So this Mr. Vickerman, William Rufus, William, Yogananda, Dhirananda, my, 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 my. And here we are just trying to finish the last pieces of our story. Okay. And Master's loyalty, so impressive. Here's this man who was eventually going to betray him. And Dhirananda's betrayal was no small issue because Master um, had been traveling, working very hard, traveling all over the country, sending all the money back to Mount Washington. And Dhirananda was a very charismatic. You see pictures of him. He was very handsome with his long, straight hair. And he was a Swami. And he was really very impressive as the leader. And he was running Mount Washington. He had a huge following. And Master was sending all this money. And uh, I believe Dhirananda absconded with it. And then there was a lawsuit, which, which Master lost. And Dhirananda just, he took all the money, and he took a whole lot of the people, he just sort of split the thing in half. I mean, we, we don't hear enough about this. Not that we need to hear scandal, but we need to understand that it was not effortless for Master, unless of really rotten things happened to him. And so when people betray and attack, as happened to Swami, just the way the story goes. And if you knew that it happened to Master, you're more at ease with it happening to Swami or to yourself. It's just the way it goes. And Master had to come back to Mount Washington, and they were utterly impoverished. That was the time, pardon me? That's when they planted the tomatoes on the hill so that they would, you know, just supplement their food. And Master had been working for so many years, like eight or nine or ten years, really hard, and it all was wiped out. And that was when he went to Mexico. And he wasn't sure he would come back. Because it was just like, you know, all this effort to build this work. And now I'm back right where I started. He writes that in some letters to Rajasi. You know, I just can't believe that it was just all wiped out. But he knew it was going to happen at the same time. But he was playing his part so well that he went to Mexico and said, maybe I'll never return. But then he got smart and he organized things legally. So the next time it happened... And Brahmacharya Narod tried to sue him. Master had protected himself legally, and Brahmacharya Narod didn't win because it, he'd, he'd, he'd learned from Dharananda. <coughs> Dharananda went to Minnesota or Michigan and became a PhD professor with his white woman wife. I think he's passed away now. We actually. In the course of the lawsuit, we ended up taking the deposition of his son for reasons I were not clear to me, but we took the deposition of his son having to do with Master's intentions with his writings and various things like that. Because various things happened in that lawsuit which became relevant to ours. Among, I mean, because SRF tried to assert that Master had no personal possessions, that in 1935, when he went to India, he willed everything to SRF. And we had lots of places where he didn't. And I think that was part of how that was all about, what Master really did. <laughs> okay.
Number 163. Someone once said to me, Yogananda said, you are a good salesman. That, I replied, is because I have sold myself on the merits of what I teach. <laughs> I've always remembered that. And actually, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a very important principle for all of us to understand. You know, we're not... When people are first beginning to try to share these teachings or to stand in front of people and so on, it's just like you're not doing anything except talking to people about what you know to be true. I, I remember Purushottava put it that way when we were all first starting out and everybody was a little nervous. He said, you're just talking to people you like about something you know. And uh, that's always been the principle that I've tried to get people to, you know, you love these teachings, you know they work. You, know, you are convinced. There's no reason in the world. Just don't step outside of what you actually know. Don't try to convince them. Um, uh, you know, uh, don't try to explain to them what samadhi is because you really don't know. <laughs> you might know it's there and you can believe in it and you can talk to them about how you believe in it. But don't really try to explain it. That's going a little too far. <laughs> but if, if one really carries the conviction, um, then you're not really selling at that point. You're really just talking to people you like about something um, you know. And, uh, and then it, it's very compelling. Sincerity is profoundly compelling because that's what he's talking about. All right. It's a little bit early, but why don't we take a little bit of a break and then we'll come back because the next one's a little longer. Okay. All right. Are we ready? 164. Most people, the Master said, lose all interest in this world at the time of death. That is natural and right. After all, they are soon going to have to leave it. Besides, this world isn't ours, it is God's. That mental disinvolvement at the approach of death should remind everyone of the need for being inwardly non-attached all through life, even while busily engaged in worldly activities. I love the juxtaposition. Busily engaged. That sort of describes how Master lived. He was very busily engaged, writing books, building buildings, making things happen, helping his disciples. When you receive, if many of you do, the daily, um, this day in history, for those of you who are watching this online, you can write to uh, ananda.org. And um, I think a lot of it was drawn together by John Parsons, who was our attorney. And he became very interested in Master. He put out, he did a lot of research. He was a scholar, is a scholar by nature. Did a lot of research on trying to document as much as he could every day of Master's life that he could document. And now they've put it out in this daily email that you get. On this day in history, in 1921, in 1926, in 1942, they'll tell you where Master was and what he was doing. And he was so creative and ambitious for the work he was doing. He was in Minneapolis talking to the ladies' club about Indian art, and he was, then he was in Portland, Oregon, and he was talking to the Chamber of Commerce about how um, eternal principles affect daily business, you know, and then he was talking here about how to attract a perfect life partner, and over here about overcoming um, old age and sickness and death through the energization exercises, just all over the country with these you know, extremely imaginative topics. Literary clubs, businessmen associations, ladies groups, garden society, historical groups, and then his whole lectures, and of course then all the writing he was doing. He was busily engaged. And of course, Swami Kriyananda, we all watched his life. He was busily engaged. So you, you don't attain detachment by low energy. You know, low energy is a profound attachment. You know, the un it's, it's you're, you're, you're bound by the, um, the gunas. You're bound by tamaguna then. And you're not free. To be low energy is not to be detached. It's just to be low energy. You have to be massively high energy. And then after you're high energy, busily engaged. Because your detachment doesn't mean anything. It's easy to be detached when nothing's going on. You have no relationships, you have no responsibilities. You know, that's not detachment, that's just like nothing. Uh, Ramakrishna uh, would joke that some man came, you know, his wife had left him and 
Um, his business had collapsed, or his master was this. Everything, the man's, his wife had left him, his business had collapsed, all of this had happened, his house had burned down. He comes to master and says, I want to renounce the world. And master says, it's not you who are renouncing the world, it's the world that has renounced you. <laughs> you know, and this is not being a renunciate, to have it all ripped away from you. To be a renunciate is when you hold it in the palm of your hand, but you're not attached to it very, very different. That's why Lahiri lived the life that he lived. He was completely engaged, but he was inwardly non-attached. That's the challenge of this particular incarnation, and that's where it started. Kriya Yoga comes down out of the Himalayas and is handed to a householder in Varanasi. You know, it could have been handed to a monk somewhere, but it was handed to a householder in Varanasi. So the whole movement starts there, in that reality. And then Master brings it to America, the, you know, the, the hotbed of materialism. And so it's all about being busily engaged, but inwardly detached. So I recall an amusing contrast the Master um, added. The story of a man who, as he lay dying, saw that the oil lamp in his room was burning too high. He called out to his son, Hey, Ramu, turn down the light. <laughs> Can't you just see him on his deathbed? Um, it is wasting oil. There the man was on the point of leaving his body. The oil of his own lamp was nearly exhausted. And still he worried about wasting the oil in that lamp. Such is worldly attachment. Even at death, people cling to what they call life. I was always... Um, of two minds when I would visit my, um, my parents and then my father in the uh, care facility where he lived the last couple of years of his life. They call it sunrise, sunrise house, you know. I always call it sunset, I forget. I think it's so cute they call it sunrise. And they're not really thinking of the next incarnation. But uh, because in many people's rooms, their rooms were just filled with the memorabilia and the photographs of their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their great-grandnieces' wedding and my album of this and my album of that. And it was all considered really super positive that there they were and they still were clinging to everything that they'd ever had. And wasn't that terrific? And I would just think, what a contrast to the Indian idea that at a certain point you just walk out into the woods. Because you know you're, it's all going to be ripped away from you pretty soon. And so maybe you just begin to let it go. And it's not that you're loving relationships, although in that tradition you just walk away. That's in the Mahabharata at a certain point. The older generation, they just, in the Ramayana too, they just, we're done. You know, we've had it. We're done with this world and they say goodbye to everyone and they're gone. They did, they're not waiting to, to die before they say goodbye. Now, you know, life gives you what it gives you, but as we get older and closer to that, we have more yesterdays than tomorrows, which is the beautiful way I heard it expressed, <laughs> which is a certain tipping point, you know that that's the truth. Now, how do you think about it? Do you try your very best to just capitalize on staying exactly as you have been? Or to begin to think, you know, I just, I don't need to anymore. I don't need to have this, whatever this might be. And he's really talking, it's natural at the end of your life, you just lose interest. You just don't want it anymore. By contrast, I was so touched by my dear mother. Mother, are you afraid of dying? This was our full philosophical discussion. Mother, are you afraid of dying? No, she said, but I hate to think of all this going on in my not being here and part of it. Oh, oh, mother, that's so sweet. <laughs> it's just like, because she was just interested in it. And I think there was a political election going on. You know, just, she was interested. When it came time for her to die, though, she actually just died very fast. So whatever it was, when the time came, just let it go out of the country. But just went in the hospital in the evening, and in the morning she was gone. Um, she'd been unwell, but still, the actual death, just, I was afraid she might hold it for a long time. My father, too, for that matter. He just, he, one day, he just refused to get out of bed. They just called me and said he refuses to get out of bed. I said, leave him. You know, he doesn't want to eat, he doesn't want to drink. 
leave him. And I just went down there with my brother and sister and I. And we just sat with him for three days and then he breathed his last. You know, we don't, he knows what he's doing. Let him just do it. And uh, that's exactly appropriate. I'm done. Whatever. And you, you often see older people do that. In our weird world, we often drag them out again and take them out to dinner and try to get them interested again instead of just recognizing that this is exactly what they need to be doing. Just letting it go. And then the extreme example of don't waste any oil. It's like, it really, you really don't want your mind to be there. You really, really, really don't want your mind to be there. And so it's, it's worth practicing. It's worth practicing just letting it go. Although one friend of mine, just before the big fire in 1976 at Ananda Village, which of course was ages ago, she used to literally visualize everything in her life burning up, including the house she lived in. Swami said afterwards, maybe that wasn't the best visualization <laughs> because her house and everything in it did just burn. <laughs> maybe that wasn't the best thing to have done. <laughs> maybe you want to practice inward detachment from now on. Anyway, Master says, speaking about the man who was dying and worried about the oil, don't be like that, the Master concluded with a blissful smile. That's a sort of sweet Master wasn't reprimanding. Don't be like that, he said, with a blissful smile. That smile was a reminder in itself of the eternal bliss that awaits all of us if we will remain ever non-attached to this world and attracted only to God. Um, when a, a friend of ours, Linda Gerber, was, uh, she, her second round of cancer was uh, metastasized and she, she actually lived for quite a few years but it was a, it was a big effort. And at one point she sort of said to Swami, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to relate to this? Swami's answer was so classic and so perfect. He said, just concentrate on light. He said, don't think about getting well or being sick or anything. Just in every situation and in your, inside yourself, just constantly follow the light. Which is what she did. And it gave her just a, a really comfortable place to be with it all. I'm just, she just saw herself and thought of herself and in, in, surrounded herself with light because she, she, her body was going and she couldn't hold on to the things of this world and she wasn't um, you know, she had a family and a home she didn't really want to it wasn't sincere for her to repudiate them because it wasn't she hadn't lost interest in them at the same time it was not wise for her to cling to them so she, she just didn't know where to go so we said concentrate on light so you know she looked at her family she looked at her home, she just tried to see the divine light behind it all. And that gave her a consistent thread. In other words, <clears throat> be attached only to God. Just the things of this world come and go, but the thread of light that runs through them all is always there. And that puts us more in the timeless zone. Very challenging and very fun. Well, that's what he's trying to say to us is um, we're going to die anyway. And I, very early in my spiritual life, that was a big motivating factor for me. Not so much the fear of it, it's just the fact of it. Sooner or later, I'm going to be alone with my consciousness. No one will be able to help me. And nothing that I'm clinging to can go with me. It seems to me that I ought to take that into account early on. Watching Tushti die, just amazing. Of course, I knew it in theory, but just... To realize um, that she, she was never getting, at a certain point, she was never getting out of that hospital bed. She wasn't able, for you know, the first couple of weeks, she could still get up and would sometimes, well, didn't exactly dress, but changed out of one set of pajamas into something else. And would sit up and talk with us. And even when we went out a little bit at the very beginning, but eventually she went into the bed and then eventually she got a catheter and never came out of the bed and never would come out of the bed. And it was so, um, it was just such a, 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 a fascinating challenge to watch, not just her, but my own mind, just really dealing with the fact that she was really never going to get out of that bed, that that body was never going to get out of that bed. And then there would be this other, this was death itself, this other thought that we, we all of us had it in the house who were with her. 
that somehow she was just going to sort of get up and go into the bedroom and we'd just all continue. The idea that it was really over, really over, was so hard to grasp. And we, uh, you know, we had cleaned out and given away all her stuff before she died and um, Surrender somewhat humorously said, I hope to heaven she doesn't just get up, you know. She's, she's going to be real upset because I've given away all her stuff. Nothing is there. And it, was, it was a joke because she wasn't going to. But the totality of the renunciation until, of course, the body itself went away. But just because we can say it, but we still, you know, I'll go home to my house and I'll crawl into my bed and I have my pillow and my blankie and I just rearranged my room and I have my clothes in my closet and someday none of it absolutely none of it not even the body just gone it, it's a sobering and a very good thought to have it was, it was interesting for the people in our community when the whole community burned down a friend of mine told me she uh, had just moved out of her house and put all of her stuff into storage. Every single thing that she'd owned and accumulated her whole life, she put it into a storage locker. And it was in Lake County. And the fire came. Like she put it all in on Friday and on Saturday. Every single thing that she owned was destroyed in fire. Except for somehow one statue survived, which was stolen the next day. <laughs> but just, and she was just saying, is like everything. All her, her children's pictures, just everything, an entire life accumulation, absolutely gone. And on one hand, I, I mean, I wouldn't be glib about that. I don't know what I would do. It just, you just think anything that you own, and you're still there. This isn't death. You're still there. But none of it is there. Yeah, and just think how much your mind would go, you know, to toward a thousand different things that are just not there anymore. Ashes. I remember when Davy's house burned and she was trying to explain it to her mother and her mother kept, well, you got the baby's clothes out, didn't you? You know, you got your, your this out, didn't you? You got your family albums out, didn't you? And she finally she said, Mother, go over to the fireplace, reach out, take a handful of ashes, hold it in your hand, that's what I have. You know, <laughs> whatever is in that hand, that's what I have. It's just gone. Very impressive. Part of you wants to have that experience and part of you is terrified of it. I have to finish my books first because if those notes burn, I would just really... After that, he can have it, but please not... Oh, I've got still got those notes. <laughs> Swami talked about his... I mean, I've got file drawers full of notes. Swami had, he said, a few notebooks which he writes at the beginning of this, that he took care of those notebooks like a doting father would take care of a sickly child, is how he described it. Wherever where he went, he was mothering those notebooks to just make sure because until he finished, they were his prized possession and he couldn't. Uh, he had to make sure they survived. <laughs> it's a very good question. They didn't burn, so they're somewhere... Catherine has an archive, has all the archives. I suspect Jyotish or someone is holding them. But she has a whole room, an archive room with a lot of things in it. I sat with her for a while and just, I, had, I sort of wanted to know what was there. She didn't mention those notebooks. She mentioned a bunch of other very interesting stuff, some of which I saw, but she didn't mention those notebooks. Good question. Maybe they're in the museum. That would be an appropriate place for them. Let's just see if we can do one more. One, six, five. Oh, oh God, oh, this is what it went to end on. To the monks, the master would sometimes quote something a saint had once said to him. Woman leads a twofold existence. During the day, she is very sweet and pleasing to look at. Thus, she lures man into her trap. At night, however, she becomes a tiger and drinks the man's blood. Master didn't mince words, did he? Did you know that one seminal emission is equal to losing a quart of blood? It saps your power. There is power in that fluid naturally. There has to be. It was given you to create new life. 
Master's talking to the monks and he's just not mincing words. You know, this is very politically incorrect. This is not how people talk. But Master called a spade a spade and he really just talked about how you know, sexuality affects and how the illusion between the senses, uh, the sexes and how, you know, cel- with the power of celibacy and the um, depleting effect of sexual overindulgence. Master used to refer to some people, he said they were sex washouts. That was his phrase. Having lost so much of that energy, they just didn't have any vitality left in their lives. And he was also speaking there about, you know, in, in America especially now, the ideal woman is the lover and the temptress. You know, the clothes are extremely provocative. Um, the, women, the way women dance, the way they talk, the way they fight for their rights, it's all very provocative. It's like the ideal woman is sexual and uh, uh, enticing. In, in India, the ideal has been, of course, everything's changing. The mother was the ideal. Being motherly, being kind, being welcoming, being supportive. I mean, you can see what a hugely different picture the two are. Now, there has to be some balance point in all of this because there is also human nature to take into effect. It's, it's very complicated. But our culture is so far out in one side, so Master has to say strong things like this. You know, this sexual energy is not just a plaything. It's not just, oh, let's just enjoy ourselves and there's no consequences to it. Earlier in this book, Swami had the statement, which I, I only ever read in here, I've never heard him say it in any other context. For women, too much promiscuity creates so much heat around the women's reproductive organs that it results in sterility. Sterility, the inability to conceive. And what is one of the huge issues we're having in our society? You know, I mean, the whole process of women trying to get pregnant has become this huge issue because so many women have trouble getting pregnant. And of course, maybe it's always been like that. I don't really know. But I mean, there ha- there's consequences. And Swami puts that one there, that too much promiscuity injures the reproductive organs. And then after this kind of a life, a woman finally decides she wants to have a family and it's not always automatic. Pregnancy just doesn't always come. Um, I'm not blaming anyone. It's just that actions have consequences. And so women who, and, and Master reprimands women in this situation for not being responsible with their energy, not recognizing that, you know, I have a role in this, I have a role to play in this too. You know, none of this is the way people think nowadays. And I go kind of crazy. I was sitting at the table the other night just with a, a group, not a, somewhere else other than here. And one man started talking about some documentary he'd seen about um, patriarchal, you know, the generations of patriarchal leadership and uh, men, patriarchal leadership causes a lot of difficulty in the world. I said, you know, that's, and I, I interrupted and I shouldn't have interrupted. I got just so impatient. I said, it's one of those things. Men have been in charge for a lot of time, a lot of long time, bad things have happened, therefore when men are in charge, bad things happen. I mean, you can't just draw it. And then the other person at the table starts talking about, you know, how much better women are than men. And just that women this, women that. It's just like, Swami just to put it, he said, men and women are two sides of the same coin. You know, one side of the coin doesn't have more value than the other side of the coin. You can't divide it up. We're very confused I'm, you know, I'm not in favor of gender inequality, and I certainly am not in favor of patriarchal abuse of women. I mean, I would be stupid to want any of those things. But all of this argument without really, this is the same thing, without just standing back, without sentimentality, and just looking at things as they actually are. You know, and it's a very peculiar time we live in, and nothing holds. <laughs> We're just in a whole different reality, but that doesn't mean human nature has changed. That means that sexuality has a certain reality, and we just have to s- say what it is and recognize that actions have consequences. It's just too obvious. And then we have to stop and consider what 
is possible and what is appropriate and recognize that whatever decisions we make have consequences and we can't just create a whole new free like um, I can do anything I want and there's no such thing as karma <laughs> like well that's a novel idea let's see how far we get with that one not very far and then Master's talking to these monks and he's trying to break the illusion in their mind because it's a you know it's a delusion Swamiji has often talked to us in the last years of his life he said you just this whole sexuality male-female thing he said once you break it you don't understand how it could ever have fooled you (laughs) that's how he put it and he would sort of say you know you poor dears when you're finally out of it you just don't have you, you, you can't imagine how you fell for it but when you're in it it's an entirely different story but Master's dealing with a, a group of men he was talking to, and he wanted them to hear it. And so he didn't mince words, and Swami thought we should hear it also. There's a, a, there was a picture, this last thing I'll say. When we were in Goa, one of the trips we were in Goa, we, would, we were there for several weeks in this uh, beautiful Taj Exotica resort, is what it was called. And our, cab, our cottages were over here, and we had a little sort of route that we would walk to get to the dining room. We, we'd become creatures of habit. And you'd go through this certain area and there was this one shop that we really liked. We really liked the owners and we'd always walk past it. And there was this big drawing. One year when we were there, there was a, a pencil sketch. It was a picture for sale. And it was sort of, not quite mogul, but a little bit like that. And uh, there w- it was a man and a woman. And Swami stood in front of the picture and he looked at it and he said, see how lustfully he's looking at her and see how proud she is to have gotten that, elicited that response from him. And I mean, as soon as he put it, that's just what you're looking at, you know? And he's like, you don't want this in your house. But that was the whole dynamic, you know? She'd been trained and she was, she was exercising her power over him. And he was just, had just been completely sucked into it and was her victim at that point. Now, of course, sexuality also has another side. I'm not... I can also talk about that side of it. And if I need to next week, I will. But that's not what Master's talking about here. And it just, you just have to say, okay. And then you have to ask yourself, like I was talking about on Sunday, what is my karma? What is realistic for me? Who am I supposed to be in this? How do I find the balance point? But uh, it doesn't change the facts. We, we, can't, we can't be afraid of the facts. We have to just hear them, accept them, and then make an honest decision about our own lives. So, on that happy note, I'll send you home. How's that? (laughs) Yes, I started on 160 and I finished at 165.